All right, well, good evening. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1? Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, <laughs> Phil started a Bible study. We hope it doesn't last as long as... No. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And as we said last week, Dr. Henry Morris said, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earths, or in other words, space and matter. And the matter so created was at first unformed and uninhabited. So God originally made the materials or building blocks from which he then fashioned the material universe. I like what Pastor John MacArthur said in his book, The, the Battle for the Beginning. He said, he explains it this way, he said, The picture it conjures up is reminiscent of a potter wishing to fashion a beautiful vessel and then fill it to be used. He first takes a lump of unformed unformed clay and places it on the wheel to mold it and fit it it to his purpose. In a similar way, God began with raw material. He first created a basic mass of elements that contained everything necessary to make a habitat for the life he would later create. And then using that, that mass of elements, he carefully shaped it and formed it into the perfect finished work he had planned from the beginning, end quote. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And so, again, just reviewing briefly, we have the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Hovering or actually vibrating over the matter that he had, the raw materials he had just created. And of course, as the Lord vibrated the Holy Spirit over the earth and water particles that God had made. Well, as he began to vibrate, as we said last time, it began to fill the universe with energy. Useful energy that the universe would need now as a giant furnace. God was starting it up. He created the, the expanse of the universe, he made the matter particles and the water particles, and now he begins to vibrate, which means he begins to fill the universe with usable energy. And then verse 3 says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The Hebrew literally says, Then God said, Let light be, and light was. It's interesting that the first thing, God did when he wanted to bring order out of chaos in the physical creation was to make light, to create light. It's interesting because he did the same thing with the new creation. Remember we talked about this? How that the physical universe was nothing for God to make. The psalmist said it was the work of his fingers. But when God wanted to make a new creation, which is all of us redeemed, okay, redemption, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we become new creations. Well, that was a lot harder. Now, nothing is hard for God, you understand. But the Bible says when God wanted to save mankind, he had to bare his arms or roll up his sleeves. Because he couldn't just speak and let sin just vanish. Someone had to pay for that sin. Sinners can't die for sinners which means it would take a holy, righteous God to come down and become one of us to die in our place. The innocent dying for the guilty. 
And so the work of redemption was much harder. We were not redeemed with things like gold or silver. But Peter said, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot and blemish. Perfect. But it's interesting, after Jesus paid the price, at one point, you know, of course, before we got saved, our life was (laughs) without form and void for the most part. It was chaos for many of us. And the first thing God did as he was starting to move now to making us a new creation was he said to us individually, let there be light. You remember that moment when the light came on, when you got it? I remember someone gave Cindy and I a Bible for our wedding gift. And I had it displayed prominently on the coffee table where all Bibles should go. Never opened it. Wasn't saved, but it was there. And I thought to myself, one of these days I'm going to read that book. Because you know what? We should. Decent people should read the Bible. (laughs) So I remember a new year started and I thought, hey, good New Year's resolution. I'm going to read that book this year. So I opened it up and I began to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Through Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers. i tell you what, it took me about six months to get to Deuteronomy. Was it painful? And I didn't get any of it. I didn't get it, all right? And I went to California to visit my mom and dad, and he went with, for the first time since they had moved out there. And They took us to Calvary Chapel. And I don't know. I, I must have received the Lord S- somewhere in that period of time. Because when I was leaving to go home, she gave me a Bible, which was a living Bible at that time, a little easier to read. I got back home, opened it up, and all of a sudden it made sense. The light had come on. God said, let there be light. And as I read his word, I just knew. I mean, I didn't understand all of it, but I certainly was getting it. And that's how God works. The physical creation... Let there be light. The new creation, same thing. Turning our lives that were once in chaos, bringing order, purpose to them. Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6? We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts, so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, verse 4, And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Now, when we read how God divided the light from the darkness, you realize for centuries people who read that believed that they understood what God was saying. And I'm not saying they don't didn't understand. I mean, I think that, you know, the idea that he divided the light from the darkness, in other words, day and night. I mean, that's obvious. However, I think there is a lot more involved in that statement than they ever thought about. Because it wasn't until the invention of the spectroscope, that we, a device that divides light, that we understand that light can be divided. In fact, light is divided into darkness at both ends of the, both ends of the spectrum. On one end, light becomes darkness in the infrared. On the other end of the spectrum, it becomes darkness in the ultraviolet. And in between, light has many divisions because light can be divided into light, 
color and sound. It's all basically the same thing. Just vibrations at different frequencies. Slow the vibrations down, lowering the frequency, and you pick them up as audible sound. Speed them up, increase the vibrations, which raise the frequency, and you see colors. Again, Pastor MacArthur said, and I quote, the different colors are simply varying wavelengths of light in the spectrum. White light, what we normally think of when we hear the word light, is not pure color itself. It is a combination of all the colors in a visible spectrum. He said, light is the single most important source of energy and heat on earth. Without light, life on earth would be impossible. Virtually all the earthly mechanisms we depend upon for the transfer of energy are derived ultimately from light. Wind, the water cycle, the ocean waves would all cease if the earth were to remain in utter darkness for very long. The earth would quickly turn cold and all life would cease. That's why light was the vital starting point in the process of creation, end quote. God knows what he's doing, you know. I remember years ago, I thought about that living Bible. Well, we used to give them out to prospective, you know, people that were interested in the Lord. You know, we'd buy them, you know, by the case, basically. And they had a soft cover version, a little cheaper, you know, it was called The Way. We got in a lot of trouble with that eventually because there was a cult that eventually came out called The Way. So, you know, they started, people started, oh, that's that cult. No, we're not that cult, but they... <laughs> But they had way on the on the Bible cover. Anyways, when you open it up, and before each book, there was like a little thing that people, you know, the editor would write interviews or something. They, you know, trying to make it help you connect with it. And I remember reading one of these little blurbs before the book started, and it might have been the Book of Genesis. I don't know, but but they were polling college kids. You know, they're so smart, and asking them if if they thought God really understood, you know, things like atoms and molecules, and things like that, physics. Most of these kids says, no, they thought that God understood rocks and trees and grass. But stuff like that, atoms and molecules, no, no, God didn't understand that. I thought to myself, wow, you know, how stupid are we? Atoms, those were, those were like Lincoln logs for God. He used them to build things. Nothing to him. But God knew what he was doing, okay? There's no accidents in God's word. And every time skeptics jump on something because they think the Bible's stupid and saying this like when the Bible says the stars are innumerable, oh, scientists used to laugh at that for centuries they laughed at that because they had counted the stars. There were 6,000 and I forgot how many stars. Several had counted the stars and said, we know, what, we know how many stars there are. And then, of course, when you had uh, higher-powered telescopes inventors, we said last week, and the Hubble telescope especially, you look out into the universe, and now scientists agree the stars are neural. Well, be patient with them. They eventually catch up to what the Bible has said all along. But anyways, verse 4, God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, guys, some people have a problem. Actually, it's more than a few today, but a lot of people have a problem with this because here on the first day of creation, we have light, we have day, we have night, but God doesn't create the sun, moon, or stars until the fourth day. 
And therefore they claim these were not literal 24-hour days, but extended periods of time, maybe millions or even billions of years in length. This has given rise to what is called the day-age theory. The day-age theory. The word day, they point out, is used elsewhere in the scriptures to speak of long or indeterminate periods of time. That's true. For example, the day of the Lord is an expression that's used throughout the scripture, primarily in the Old Testament. And it doesn't signify a literal day as we know. It signifies an extended period of time when God is pouring his judgment out upon the earth. Also, they point to 2 Peter 3, verse 8, where Peter says, With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And so these day-age theory creationists argue that the days of creation spoken of in Genesis chapter 1 were actually long periods of time or geological eras, not literal days. This, they say, explains how the earth is actually billions of years old even though the Bible seems to indicate it's roughly between six and 10,000 years in age. Some believe that during these ages, now I'm talking about those who believe that each day, quote-unquote, is a period of time, like a billion years, we'll say. And some of the folks that hold to this day-age theory of creation believe that during these long ages, you had theistic evolution taking place. What is theistic evolution? It's the belief that God created the amoeba, but then stepped back and let the amoeba evolve, and then evolution took place. But God started it, right? God created the first single-celled organism and then let the whole thing evolve. Others say, no, no, no. They believe that for millions of years, animal evolution took place. That's true, because they believe in evolution also. But late in the process, God made man. Man did not evolve from apes, but he came out on the scene uh, much later. Uh, after animal evolution was taking place for millions of years, then God at one point created man. Now, there are numerous problems uh, with the day-age theory view, not the least of which is that death didn't become a reality in, in the world until Adam's sin. We talked about that last time. Romans 5, verse 12, Paul says that sin entered the world, excuse me, death entered the world through one man's sin, Adam. And so you really can't have evolution driven by death biblically. It couldn't have happened before Adam. And these are folks that love the Lord, okay? Uh, you can be an, a believer in an old earth, billions of years old, and still be a Christian. The problem is it undermines the authority of God's word because God's word doesn't say that's how he did it. Now, you know, people say, well, God could have did it that way. Well, sure, he could have. But it's not important what he could have done. It's only important what he did do. And when we go to the word of God, God says clearly, and we'll see that in a moment, that he made everything in six literal days. And, and that's just, you know, again... Folks want to, you know, all these ages, you know, that's when all the evolution took place. That's when this and that happened. That's, you know, evolution is, you know, driven by death. You can't have, the Bible says death didn't come into the world until Adam's sin. So uh, right now you're opening up a whole can of, <laughs> a whole theological can of worms uh, when you start, you know, 
talking about death before Adam, okay? But even more to the point, guys, nothing in the text implies that these were anything but literal 24-hour days. In fact, the language in these verses demonstrates just the opposite. Yes, it's true. It's true that the Hebrew word yom, the word for day, in the Old Testament can mean an indeterminate period of time and not a literal day. It's true. But it's the exception. It's the exception. By far, when the word yom is used in the Old Testament, it most always refers to a 24-hour day. And listen, it always, underline, always refers to a 24-hour day without exception when it's coupled with a number or with the words morning or evening. Now, look at verse 5 again. God uses a number in both the words morning and evening to make sure that we understand he's not speaking figuratively. Here he's speaking literally. Again, verse 5, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. The very same expression, the evening and morning were the second day, were the third day, were the fourth day, etc., is used for all six days of creation, indicating that these days were all the same, literal 24-hour days. Now look, if God wanted to communicate that these were not literal days but extended periods of time, he could have done so by using different words or phrases. That wouldn't have been hard for God. But listen to me. If he wanted to communicate that these days were literal 24-hour days, which I believe he wanted to do, there was no other way he could have done it. It's clearly as he did it here. I mean, here's the Lord saying, look, I want to make this as clear as I possibly can. So he, he words it in a way that seems almost clumsy and redundant. The morning and the evening were the first day. Every day of creation, he repeats himself. Why? He doesn't want us spiritualizing this. He wants us to take it literally. What does man do? He spiritualizes it. I mean, he couldn't have made it any clearer. Also in Exodus 20, when Moses was laying down the Sabbath law and how the people of Israel were to work six days and the seventh day, the Sabbath, they were to rest. Listen to what Moses said. Exodus 20, verse 11. He said, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Well, obviously, you know, Moses is using the six days of creation to be a model for how we all work six days and take a day off to rest. Actually, the Sabbath was applied to Israel, but it's a good principle for everyone to follow that you work Max six days, take a day off. Your body needs to rest. Spend that time with God, right? And so what is Moses doing? Wanting to communicate that to Israel. He goes back to the week of creation. Because that's what God did. He worked six days and rested the seventh day. And obviously Moses believed those were literal days. They were not six one million year periods or six one billion year periods. Good heavens, that would have made for a long week, wouldn't it? Look, since God made it so clear that the days of creation were literal 24-hour days, why then do so many Christian pastors, professors, and lay people embrace the day-age theory? Because they have been convinced that science has proven that the earth is billions of years old and that evolution is true. 
And because of it, now they have to make the Bible, and in particular, the creation account in Genesis, they have to make it compatible now with the teachings of modern science so that Christians don't look like a bunch of, you know, backwards, brainless idiots. It's a sellout to the scientific community. It's a capitulation to them because we want their approval. I don't, but there's a lot of Christians that do. And so they take what God has clearly said and they try to to soften it or actually rework it so that it, it comes in the line with what science and scientists have been teaching. Look, how can we determine the age of the earth? Well, we can estimate the age of the earth by adding up the genealogies. That's how they really do it. You add up the genealogies in the Bible, and as you do, it puts the earth around 6,000 years old. Now, there's a lot of good reasons why, and I'll give you a couple in a second, but remember, God created the universe in six days, seventh day he rested. Was he tired? No, he was laying down a pattern for us, right? Why do I believe the earth is about 6,000 years old? Because man has labored on this earth for about 6,000 years. And Jesus is going to come back and we're going to take a Sabbath, thousand-year Sabbath called the Millennial Kingdom. So there's a lot of reasons why I believe that the earth is about 6,000 years old. Now, of course, when people try to use 2 Peter 3.8, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day as a biblical justification for the, for the day-age theory, just let them know that what Peter was talking about there has nothing to do at all with creation. All Peter was pointing out was this, simply this. God is outside of the physical dimension of time. And time is a physical dimension. It's affected by mass and velocity. So, so the idea is that God is... Time is a, was a creation of God, along with the three-dimensional... We, we live in a four-dimensional universe. Height, depth, width, and time. All right, Time is also a physical dimension. God created these things. And God is not subject. He is, he is transcended. He's outside of his creation. Therefore, he is not subject to the dimensionality of time. He's outside of it. God lives in what we call the eternal present tense. That's why he says, I am... That I am, not I was so I was or I will be who I will be. I am that I am because God is always in the eternal present tense. For God, everything is happening right now. Right now, he sees Adam and Eve in the garden eating that forbidden fruit. Right now, he sees King David ascending to the throne. Right now, he sees World War II happening. Right now, he's at our Bible study. He is Everything for God is in the eternal present tense. He is outside of time, he's not limited by time. That's all Peter was saying. And notice, he says, to who is a day like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day? To who? To the Lord, right? To the Lord. God is outside of time. But Genesis, obviously, is a historical book that was written in time. In time. So when Genesis talks about the days of creation... God is saying, look, creation happened in time. Therefore, you can't say, well, each day of creation could be like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. No, that doesn't work. Because you're not God, we're not outside of time. 
God was talking about the physical creation which is subject to time. All right? And again, I personally believe the, the earth is less than 10,000 years old, probably more around the area of 6,000 years old. And you know what? There's many scientists now who have come to believe that based on the evidence. I'll give you one example. Several years ago, an interesting paper was done by Dr. Barnes at the University of East Texas in El Paso on the, electro, on the electromagnetic field that surrounds the Earth. And he's probably done, Dr. Barnes, he's probably done more studies on Earth's electromagnetic field than anyone else. In his paper, Dr. Barnes pointed out that 165 years ago, a Dutch scientist measured the level of, of the electromagnetic field around the Earth. And every year since then to the present day, scientists have continued to measure Earth's electromagnetic field. And they have discovered that the field is decaying at a very constant rate. In fact, since they started measuring this field, there has not been any variance in the rate of decay of Earth's electromagnetic field. Very constant. So Dr. Barnes decided to use this information by turning it around and extrapolating backwards how strong this electromagnetic field would have been 25,000 years ago. And because of it, through his calculations, he postulated that the field would have been so strong, it would have heated up the surface of the Earth to 240 degrees Fahrenheit, evaporating all of Earth's moisture on its surface into the atmosphere, making life impossible. Then he extrapolated back 100,000 years and discovered that the electromagnetic field back then would have been so strong that the surface of the earth would have been in a molten state. Therefore, he said, the earth can't be billions of years old. It can't be billions of years old, like the evolutionists say it is. But when he shared the information with the scientific community, oh, they had an answer. They came up with a, an, a, an answer for the whole thing. They said that earth's electromagnetic field dies down every 10,000 years, and then recharges itself. Very scientific. <laughs> How it recharges itself, and with what power source it uses to recharge itself, they don't know. They just know that's the way it happened. Why? Because it conflicts with evolution if we don't say that. And so once again, whenever the facts contradict the theory of evolution, evolutionists come up with some lame, unscientific answer to explain away the evidence. Now some of you might be thinking, but wait a minute, doesn't radiometric dating prove? This is a big one, okay? You hear this all the time. Science has proven the age of the Earth is billions of years old. How? How? Through, you know, radioactive dating. Okay? Well, if you study a little bit radiometric dating, you will realize it's based on assumptions and is notoriously faulty. Okay? Notoriously unreliable. Let me give you a few examples taken from uh, Ken Ham's foundation series, which we just finished. He said when they used the potassium-argon dating method to date the basalt. Basalt is lava rock, okay? You have lava that flows and then hardens into rock. Well, sometimes this lava will, uh, will flow and surround trees and things. And so what they did was they took some basalt, lava rock, and it dated... 45 million years old. And then they dated, with carbon um, dating, they dated the wood inside the lava rock, and that dated 45,000 years old. 
So Ham says, you got 45,000-year-old wood inside a 45-million-year-old rock? That's a problem. I mean, if it all happened, I mean, if the lava flowed over this tree at the same time, it has to be the same age. That's the problem with radiometric dating. It's notoriously unreliable. In fact, he says if something is millions of years old, you shouldn't find carbon-14 in it. But actually, we do. We find it in dinosaur bones and coal deposits and so on. To, and so on. Uh, these things said to be millions of years old. But we find this um, carbon-14 in these things when it, it doesn't last millions of years. And yet, the things that the, they say are millions of years old, like dinosaur bones and other things, we see... We find that the carbon-14 is present in those things. He went on to say there are numerous examples of young rocks, rocks that we know the age of, dating back millions of years. I even heard a scientist who was a Christian man, a godly man, say that uh, he was somewhere and there was a, a, a real violent electrical storm and a lightning bolt hit a tree and immediately uh, petrified the roots. So he thought, this is going to be fun. He dug up some of the roots, sent it to a lab to have it, you know, radiometric dated. It came back millions of years old. Okay? And this is common. Common. Okay? Now, you say, okay, fine. All right. There's problems. I get it. But what about the problem of God creating light on the first day, but not making the sun or the stars until the fourth day? And, and let me just answer that by first stating this, okay? Many scientists say this proves the universe is billions of years old. Starlight. How? Well, since we see the light of stars that are billions of light years away, and we see that light now from Earth, it must have taken billions of light years to get here. So that means the Earth has to be, and the universe has to be billions of years old. Well, you would think that unless God did something unique. And he's God, he can certainly do that. I believe the answer to that is that God filled the universe instantly with light. He filled the universe instantly with light on the first day. And then on the fourth day, he simply hung the light sources behind the light, the sun, the stars, etc. You say, that's ridiculous. Really? Really? Read Revelation 20 and 21 into 22. You read about the new Jerusalem, this new city where we're all going to live for eternity, in the new heavens, the new earth. It says that there will no longer be sun, nor moon, nor stars for light, but God will light the city and the entire universe, I believe, with his own glory. I believe God filled the universe with light. What was the, the, the kind of light he used? Was it something supernatural or physical? If you ever study light, and I can't give you because I'll mess it up. Light is very unique. It, sometimes it acts like waves. Sometimes it acts like particles. Scientists can't figure it out. Light is a very interesting thing. And I believe it comes from God, who is light, the Bible says. Originally, God clothed Adam and Eve with light. They were creatures of light. When they fell, that all changed. And someday we are going to be glorified. 
And remember when Jesus went up on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, he began to what? Radiate like the sun. Because his glorified body was coming, was a little preview. We are all going to be creatures of light in eternity. Light comes from God, very unusual properties, absolutely essential for life on earth or for useful energy in the universe. I mean, it all, it, light is incredible. And so I believe God made the universe mature, light-wise, day one. So said, let there be light, bam, light was. Build the universe. Then on day four, he made the sun, the stars. Why did he do it that way? To show us he doesn't need those things. Okay. If I want to be a little creative, I want to make light first, I'm God. I can do that. And by the way, God does this all the time. He does things that don't make sense to the human mind. I was watching a documentary one time, and they, able to, they, they built these uh, little submarines that are so uh, uh, strong, they can go down to the deepest parts of the ocean. And once they got down, of course, it's pitch black. I mean, there's no light down there. So they take these things down there, turn on lights, and they were shocked to see the variety of creatures down there. And many of them were extremely brightly colored, which would have been, there's no use for that. It's completely dark down there. So why were these evolutions were baffled? Why would these creatures need to be so beautifully colored? Because it pleased the heart of God or the mind of God to make it that way. Because he could see them. And once in a while he throws his little curveball. Because man's so smart, you know, so big for his britches. God doesn't understand atoms and molecules. He understands rocks and trees. And God's so really. So every once in a while he shows us that, you know, he throws us something that completely, you know, because he wants us to know we're not as smart as we think we are. And because he's God, he can do whatever he wants. And sometimes he will act outside of common sense simply because it pleases him to do so. So, so God made the universe mature immediately, light filling every area of the universe. didn't take billions of light years for light to get to the earth. He just said, let light be, boom. Light was, the universe was created mature. Just like Adam, by the way. If you could have been there, one minute after Adam was born and looked at Adam, you would have probably thought he was about 30 years old. Because God made him mature, right? Oh, the question is, did Adam have a belly button? I'll let that sink in for a second. Did Adam have a belly button? Did he have a navel? I believe he did. Because God made him mature to look like all of his descendants. If you could have been in the garden a minute after God created it, all the trees, if you could have cut down a tree and looked on the inside, would you have seen annular rings? I believe you would have. Because God made everything mature. Okay? Well, Genesis 1, verse 6, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. The word firmament in the Hebrew simply refers to an expanse. That's how it's translated, by the way, in the NIV and the NASB. The New Living Translation translates it space. Verse 8 says that God called the firmament heaven. But it's not the heaven that you would think of typically when you hear the word heaven or see it. 
you're thinking heaven where God dwells. Well, that's, you're correct, but not here. Okay, heaven. In fact, let me just say this. In the Bible, the word heaven is used three different ways to speak of three different expanses. First of all, you have atmospheric heaven. That's what surrounds the earth, earth's atmosphere. Okay, the first heaven. Then you have what the Bible calls the second heaven. This is celestial heaven, or in other words, the universe, outer space, where the planets and stars are. And then there is a third heaven. In fact, Paul was caught up to the third heaven, which he writes about in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. And the third heaven is what we think of when we think of heaven. That's where God dwells. Is it a place? Well, certainly it's a place. But is it, is it beyond the celestial heaven? Maybe. I think it's maybe a totally different dimension than our physical universe. Can you imagine? And I've used this illustration before, but think about this. Yes, we're in a four-dimensional universe, but let's just think of the three dimensions, height, width, depth, okay? Think of a two-dimensional existence. What if we were two-dimensional creatures? Do you realize how limited life would be? You can only come in contact with somebody edge to edge. We know embracing, no hugs, all right? Uh, no, no, a lot of things. Do you understand how God adding one dimension, taking us from two-dimensional to three-dimensional beings, how much that added to life? What if God dwells in a million dimensions? What if the eternal state is millions of dimensions? We can't even fathom what that existence would be like. I mean, it's, just to think about that blows your mind, really. I mean, this idea that people think you're going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp for eternity, I got news for them. I mean, you know, we're going to be exploring the universe, a universe that is multidimensional, no doubt, where you can, you can reach any part of it at the speed of thought, not light. light that would be too slow. I mean, light's fast, 186,282 miles a second. That's the speed that light travels. That's too slow for the universe. You need to be able to travel the speed of thought which is what I believe God will allow us to do. But here in Genesis 1, the firmament or the heaven being spoken of is the atmosphere around the earth. Now, don't let the language confuse you, but there's something very important going on here, and I'm not going to take the time right now to get into it in depth. I'll get into it in a little more depth when we come to the sixth day of creation. Uh, excuse me. Uh, we come to chapter 6, I should say. Uh, the flood. Okay? Um, but... Here God is telling us in Genesis 1 that he divided the waters on the surface of the earth, the oceans, the seas, from the water that was above the earth, separating, listen, both with the atmosphere around the earth. So in your minds, I hear this. You imagine you're standing there and you see the water on the surface of the earth. Then you see the firmament or the heaven, the place where the birds fly our atmosphere. Then above that, originally God had another layer of water, a moisture barrier of water that surrounded the entire earth. Now, that would have done, it would have had some incredible effects on this, ecologically on this planet. Let me just read to you what Dr. Morris said. He said, the waters above the firmament thus probably constituted a vast blanket of water vapor above the troposphere and possibly above the stratosphere as well. 
in the high temperature region now known as the ionosphere and extending far out into space. God encased the earth in this water barrier, blanket, bubble. Such a water blanket would greatly have changed the ecology on the earth. Henry Moore suggests several effects of a vapor blanket surrounding the earth. Number one, he said it would serve as a global greenhouse, maintaining an essentially uniformly pleasant temperature all over the world. Now, you have to understand that. We're going to talk about this when we get to chapter 6. But this moisture canopy would have caused a greenhouse effect, and it would have caused temperatures around the earth to be consistent. You wouldn't have harsh climactic regions, North Pole, South Pole, and so on. How do we know that was true? Because um, scientists have dug up woolly mammoths, these ancient uh, giant uh, um, elephant creatures. They have dug them up underneath hundreds of feet of ice in Siberia, a place very cold. And when they cut them open to, to, uh, you know, what is the word I'm looking up? Dissect, thank you. To dissect them, they found tropical tropical vegetation still in their digestive tracts. They were frozen so quickly, the juices, the gastric juices in their stomachs didn't even have time to digest this stuff. Tropical vegetation. Something happened to flash freeze these creatures at many hundreds of degrees below zero. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 6. Also, Morris points out, without great temperature variations, there would be no significant winds. And the water rain cycle would not form. There would be no rain on the earth as we know it today. And that's true. The Bible says before the flood, there was no rain on the earth. I mean, nobody had ever seen it rain. So then how did things get watered? Well, Morris alludes to it. He said, number three, there would be lush, tropical-like vegetation all over the world, fed not by rain, but by a rich evaporation and condensation cycle resulting in heavy dew or ground fog. So if you've ever owned a terrarium, you know, you don't have to water a terrarium because the way it works is uh, the moisture uh, evaporates up onto the walls, you know, and condenses on the walls of the terrarium and then gently falls back down to water. It's It's got its own watering cycle, its own hydrological cycle. Uh, doesn't need you to add water to it. You just put the water in initially, and it keeps watering itself. That's how God did it in the beginning. I mean, there was a mist that came up out of the ground every day and watered everything the Bible says before the flood. Number four, or excuse me, number four, light would enter into the atmosphere, but because of this water blanket around the earth, it would be bounced off all over the, you know, all over the world. The light would be diffused so that even on the dark side of the earth, there would be a twilight. You wouldn't have night, really, but you'd have a, a darkened time, period, okay? And, of course, the extended light would cause vegetation to grow a lot bigger. More light, more photosynthesis, bigger tomatoes. In fact, they have found uh, in the fossil record asparagus plants 12 feet high. Tomatoes the size of basketballs. I mean, this is all the fossil record, okay? Hold on to that question, okay? Uh, So we see that the earth was much different. Number five, Morris said the vapor blanket would filter out ultraviolet radiation. This is an important one. 
It would filter out ultraviolet radiation, cosmic rays, and other destructive energies bombarding the planet. These are known to be the cause of mutations which decrease human longevity. Human and animal lifespans would be greatly increased. Yes, because all the harmful radiation from outer space was blocked out. It couldn't come down to attack our DNA and cause mutations and cause us to age a lot quicker than God uh, had intended. That's why before the flood, people lived to be 900 years old all over the place. If you notice that right after the flood, as God tore down the windows of heaven, the moisture barrier was taken down. Lifespans began to drop quickly. Noah lived 650 years. After him, it says 500 years, 450 years. I mean, people, until it got down around 150 years. Lifespans began to drop quickly because the moisture barrier had been taken down by God. And finally, number six, the vapor blanket would provide the necessary reservoir for the potential worldwide flood. Yes, God caused the rain from heaven. Of course, he opened the windows of heaven. So this water that was in suspended in space above the earth uh, began to fall on the earth. But he also broke up the fountains of the deep and flooded everything on the earth. Um, and the mountains were, you know, Everest, the flood, you know, was higher than Everest. Everest wasn't around at that time. Okay, the earth was kind of uniform in its topography. Uh, of course, the flood changed that, a lot of that. It caused regions to, to rise up and valleys to form. But initially, it wasn't like that. And we'll talk more about the effects of this water blanket or bubble uh, it had in the pre-flood world when we get to chapter 6. Verse 9. Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and, he, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, at this time, guys, the earth was completely covered over with water until God made the dry land appear. And initially, the continents were only one large land mass. The earth wasn't divided into continents like we see today. That didn't happen until the days of Peleg, Genesis 10, verse 25. And the idea that all the continents at one time were one big landmass has gained a lot of support over the years. The difference is that creationists believe the, the, the continents separated rather quickly, as the Bible indicates, whereas evolutionists believe it happened slowly over millions of years of continental shift and drift. Verse 11, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields, its, uh, yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that... God saw that it was good, and evening and the morning were the third day. The key here is that grass, herbs, vegetables, and fruits all yielded seeds, and those seeds would bring forth only after their kind. Okay? In other words, the seeds that came from an apple would not produce pumpkins, nor would the seeds of an orange produce tomatoes. God created everything in nature to bring forth after its kind, although, as we're going to see, he did allow for changes within a kind, or sometimes called adaptations. 
Now we see that in the animal kingdom quite a bit, and evolutionists use that to prove evolution. But it's just it's just verti- it's just horizontal evolution in the sense that it changes within a kind. It's not one kind becoming another kind. So we have different kinds of dogs. Excuse me. We have different species of dogs in th- their kind, and uh, different birds uh, in their kind that have adapted to their environment. But we don't have birds becoming lizards and lizards becoming this and that. You know. Uh, God said everything would bring forth after its kind. Not one kind becoming another kind as evolution teaches. In fact, each seed has its own little genetic code, which God placed within it, so that it will only bring forth after its kind. Now, <laughs> let me digress a little bit, and we'll end with this, uh, these verses here. Uh, pick it up next week. But I love to think about some of these things, Okay. Of course, it would be necessary for these seeds to multiply and reproduce in other areas, right? And it's fascinating to see how God designed different seeds to be carried into new places so they can reproduce. Give you an example. There are little seeds that grow in pine cones that if they were to drop straight down, they probably wouldn't survive. Why? Because the mother pine tree is taking up all the space, all the nourishment, all the light, There's not enough room for that little seed to germinate and grow. So what do we see? We see how that God in his wisdom designed these seeds with little propellers. And when the pine cone dries up, it splits open. As the seed falls, the little propeller begins to spin. You've seen this. And it takes the seed far enough away from the mother tree so that it can have nourishment, plenty of room to grow, plenty of sunlight. Now, if you're an evolutionist, then I have to ask you, how long do you think it took the mother pine tree to figure out, i got to get these seeds far enough away from me, so i got to evolve a little propeller on the seed? Ridiculous. You know? Ridiculous. But that's what they would have us believe. That the mother pine tree figured out eventually, that we got to get the seeds far enough away. Hey, how do I do that? Let's evolve a little propeller on the seed. Right? Ridiculous. Also, there are pods that explode. Okay, God has created some pods that explode, and they throw the seeds out far enough where they can germinate and grow. Other seeds have a little hook on them. And when you walk by, they hook themselves on your pants, or an animal will hook onto them, and eventually, you know, you either shake it off or they fall off in an area where they can then germinate and grow. Others God has created, other seeds God has created with a quick drying glue. Interesting. And it touches you or an animal, and it glues itself onto you or that animal. But when the glue dries, the seed falls off and finds a new home. Other seeds God surrounds with a delicious meat, like berries. And of course, animals come along and eat the berries and then deposit the seeds in a new location, complete with fertilizer. Now, we've all know this one. Some seeds like dandelions have little parachutes. And when the wind blows, catches the little parachute and distributes these things on every square inch of your lawn. (laughs) Where they take root and are just as happy as can be. Look, God, and I want to underscore the word God, 
has designed many different ways by which seeds propagate themselves, testifying to the creative genius of God who created these things fully developed and ready to reproduce themselves on the day they were created. And so nature does declare the glory of God, doesn't it? You can't study... Do you realize how many scientists in the old days especially, even today, but in the old days, like guys like Isaac Newton and others, who started getting into science... Who, who wanted to study the creation because they knew the Bible said the creation declares God. So if I want to know God better, I want to study his creation. And that's how they mo- that's what motivated them to become scientists. And, that, and when they saw these things, they gave glory to God. Not today. Today, scientists are explaining everything apart from God. And that's why they're so clueless. And their explanations often make no sense. Because these things can't evolve the the species would die before evolution would ever allow it to adapt like this. And so I just see in this the creative genius of God and how the heavens and the earth and all of creation declares his glory. So we'll pick it up next week, God willing, uh, in verse 14, Genesis 1. We're moving now, aren't we? All right, let's pray. Father... We thank you, Lord, for an awesome time in your word, just seeing your creative genius at work. And Father, we just thank you. You are God and we are not. Lord, you're so much wiser than we are. Give us grace, Lord, to look into the creation and see the hand of the creator. And as we do, to bow our heads in humble silence. Stop thinking we know so much. And to realize, Lord, we know nothing compared to you. And that's why we need to study what you have said. Not just about the creation, but about our lives. That we would adjust our lives according to the wisdom of your word. Because then, Lord, we will live a life that you have chosen. A life that you have planned and purposed. Our lives will not be chaotic, without form and void. They will have meaning. They will have purpose. They will be orderly as you have chosen. So we thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.